Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. We're grateful to be in conversation with Derek Gill. Derek graduated university with a major in management information systems with minors in computer science and philosophy, and he worked for a major consulting firm as a systems integration consultant. Years later, after a life-changing wake-up call and several epiphanies, Derek was called into the medical healing arts. Derek realized quickly that the skills learned as a systems integrator were very relevant to his career as a structural integrator. Derek went on to study at the Rolf Institute and is a certified advanced Rolfer and a Rolf Movement practitioner. He's also a graduate of the Osteopathic College of Ontario and has been an assistant instructor to the school's founder, Dr. Stephen Sinnett. In his free time, he enjoys surfing, playing basketball, and self-inquiry. Derek has an endless curiosity, a love of learning, and enjoys sharing his accumulated knowledge and life experience with his students. In today's talk, we'll learn about Derek's history, how he got into bodywork and rolfing, his tech background, and his breakdown, which led him to where he is today. Waking up, his global SI project, and more. It's a long, enjoyable talk, so sit down, get some tea, and with that, we'll begin our talk. Hey there. <laughs> oh, Hi. <laughs> nice to see you. Hey, Derek. Hey, Andrew. Yeah. Happy to reconnect you guys after, after so long. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. I remember in our training being like in awe with you because you, you didn't deviate from the 10 series. Yeah, I, I took that five-year edict seriously. Hmm. Yeah, I, that blew my mind. So, my story. Um, I grew up in Florida, in Jacksonville. Um, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I went to Florida State. I studied management information systems. And after college, I went to work for Anderson Consulting, which is now called Accenture. And it was... At the time, the largest professional services uh, consultancy in the world, and they were in, I think, 72 cities and 50-something countries. They're probably bigger by now. I haven't kept up with that. Um, and I, I did corporate consulting off and on for about 13 years. Um, I stayed with them long enough to get my first promotion. Uh, it was kind of like a corporate army. Um, there were different ranks, and uh, they spent a ton of money on training, and it was a great place to start. Um, but I always kind of felt like I was being held back or being forced to be part of the herd. So I had an opportunity to do um, contract consulting, and these were back in the early days of a boom in a software called SAP. And SAP is an enterprise resource planning software, which basically what we were doing was taking a company that had 
sometimes thousands of disparate systems, you know, they have a homegrown accounting system, a homegrown order management system, a homegrown plant maintenance system, a homegrown manufacturing and production planning system. And we were bringing all those things onto one common platform. So it was an interesting um, way, you know, when you're, when you're that age, your neurology is very open to being wired in a certain way. And uh, so their methodology for how to approach projects and how to manage them, um, along with how we worked with the, the client personnel to get them to accept the changes, to um, participate in that change process with little resistance uh, as possible, was an interesting place to start my career. Um, and it was complex because we were not only taking a lot of data that was disparate and maybe got updated once a week or once a day or once a month and bringing that into a real time system, but that also shifted the culture of the companies that we were in. So instead of people, you know, that might be able to sweep some numbers under the rug, and write some stuff off at the end of the month to make it balance, all of a sudden now every transaction had to balance throughout the whole system. So it stirred up a lot of chaos on some level uh, and people's attachments to how they had done their job for 20 years. And so, you know, we were trained to kind of help walk people through that change process and keep them pumped up about like what the new possibilities were on the other end of it. And, and help them navigate what was often a, a difficult process. Um, so I picked up a lot of gray hairs along the way <laughs> doing that. Um, and at some point, I started to feel like, you know, I was doing the same thing over and over. Like, one time it was for, I did a project for Revlon, so we were making makeup. I did a project for Coca-Cola, we were making sugar water. I did a project for Sony and that was their mobile phone division. And, you know, there was a semiconductor company, but at some level it was, we were helping them become more efficient to make more money, which there's nothing wrong with that. But internally it wasn't as rich and uh, fulfilling as it was when I first started. During that time, I was flying a lot. I was sitting in a desk a lot. These are pretty high-stress situations. Um, and my back was hurting. And I was out in California doing a project for Philips Semiconductor. And I remember looking online to see a massage therapist. And, of course, in California, there were like 300 search results. And I found a lady that was three blocks from my office um, in Sunnyvale up in the Silicon Valley. And she did something called quantum touch healing. I had no idea what that was, but I said, Hey, she's three blocks away. I'm going to go and try it out. So what is it? And what is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's energy healing and it's, you know, it's of a particular type. She barely touched me. Most of it was hands off. She would go to different places in my body. At that point, I wasn't really aware enough to 
feel the subtleties of what she was doing. Um, she talked to me a lot about my breath and I felt really relaxed after the sessions. But she had a three session package and at the end of it, I was like, you know, I do feel really relaxed after these sessions, but I feel like I want someone to get their hands on me. And she's like, oh, you should go see a rolfer. And I had no idea what that was. You know, it's kind of that look that I see so often now when I tell people <laughs> what I do, you know, there's like, um, what's that? So she explained what she knew of it. And so I started searching and I actually found uh, a few practitioners in that area. But the one that looked like a best fit for me was Michael Villain. Some of you may know him because he runs the, the raw forum. So he was my first rolfer, and I went through the 10 series with him in um, Palo Alto. And it was, it was profound. <laughs> um, I knew immediately that like, he was planting seeds, not just with his hands, but with some of the things he was saying. And it, it was making me contemplate perceptions of myself that were new. Um, and I could feel he was getting me out of my head, which was very well exercised at that point through academics and, and professional work and into my body, which was a really big experience for me. Um, so the profoundness, would you say it was it more on how he got you to perceive yourself? perceive the world around you or meeting your, your body discomfort needs or both. Cause I feel like well, when people come to Rolfi and a lot of times, cause there's such a mixed um, reason to go. Some people are going because they want to work through trauma or some kind of psycho emotional, or they really want that heavy handed deep massage type of work. Right. Well, I was having a lot of low back pain. So that was my, motivator um and i probably like uh more firm work if i had to put my preference on a spectrum um but i think what was really profound for me was just the things he was asking me to notice in my body how i organized myself how i moved how i distributed the weight as i made different movements um, and I think there's something with the touch too, that, that is waking something up that's below the language center in the brain. So that was going on too. And I don't know that I, I probably intellectualized it at first because those were my tools back then, but I knew that I, I was, my awareness was being brought below the neck <laughs> in ways that, that were happening for the first time. Um, and I had already thought about making some kind of a career change. And uh, it was interesting because he was actually a, a systems administrator, a database administrator. So it wasn't exactly what I was doing, but there was enough of a, a lingo or a, an understanding of like what I was doing every day and how that affected one's body and one's thought processes and state of mind that was an interesting uh, synergy there. Um, so I thought immediately, I want to say it was session after session three, like, wow, this might be something I'd be interested in doing as a profession. 
at that time, I, um, I had invested in, in a nightclub in Jacksonville and the intent was that I was going to be a, a silent partner. And some things happened. The, the couple, it was me and a, a married couple and they were to run the place. They were the majority owners and they had, uh, successfully run a couple of other places. Well, soon after I invested, they told me they were getting divorced. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of a long story that, that it's probably the kind of stuff that the podcast viewers need to hear all the details of, but I had a choice. I, I could either like lose most of the investment, let them sell the, the liquor license and, and they were trying to do that without my knowledge, but I happened to see it in one of the business journals in Jacksonville. Um, or I could find a partner to go in with me because I didn't have enough money at that time to to buy them out and have enough for what I thought would the the investment and the enough capital to run it for six months to a year on my own. So I wound up uh, finding an investor and but I remember that decision point. It was like, will I go straight to learn how to do structural integration or, or will I make this run with a nightclub? By the, by the, I just want to put this out there that so many people, I've, I, I very rarely hear anyone say, well, I got in, into a business with a married couple and it worked out great. Generally not divorced, generally other where the couple just generally sees eye to eye against the other partner. So it's two against one. Yeah. Just if people are listening out there, don't not do it, but... Listen to Derek, maybe think a few times before entering into that partnership. Yeah. Well, I was a lot younger then and I'm hopefully a little wiser now. Uh, but I, I learned a lot through that experience um, on many levels. Uh, it was the first time I had actually had a business that had employees and we had like a physical structure that had to be maintained. We had inventory. It's a lot different than when I was doing private consulting where, you know, basically I'm selling my time and my expertise. Uh, it's very different. Uh, there's a lot more moving parts to that. So that was a good experience. And we had a pretty good run. It was right before the Super Bowl came to Jacksonville. And um, we innovated in that field. The New York Times came to scout out Jacksonville because Jacksonville had never hosted a Super Bowl. And we were the only nightclub they reviewed. So, you know, it was a big fish in a small pond scenario, but well, oops, 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 oops. Yeah, then you went into uh, <laughs> some structural integration. <laughs> so then I'm back in Florida, away from the practitioners that I had had, and um, I really missed it. And it was always in the back of my mind: uh, this is something that I'd like to do. So. I had some issues with my next business partner as well, which maybe we'll have another podcast about uh, business experiences, <laughs> the do's and don'ts. Um, I guess the bottom line, I'll, I'll give you a teaser of that podcast to come is uh, don't go into nightclub business with an alcoholic. That's, um, that's great. Some, yeah. of the, some of the inventory was consumed. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, don't get me wrong. Those days I was consuming my fair share, but I, I would usually wait until nightfall. He would kind of start in the morning. So at some point I could see the writing on the wall with the nightclub and I went back to work doing consulting. And at that point I was working with Honeywell Aerospace in Phoenix and I was flying back and forth. I was leaving at six o'clock flight on Monday morning, 
working in Arizona until Thursday, catching a flight home. And then I was working in the nightclub on the weekends. So that kind of burning it at both ends can only uh, go on for so long. And I wound up, um, I finished the project in Arizona. We went live. That's usually like a three month crazy exercise where people are working 80, 90 hours a week and no one's flying home. Uh, all hands on deck kind of craziness. And we went live with that project. I flew home and it was the Super Bowl at the nightclub. And that was intense. That client sent me to a project in Clearwater. And a couple months later, I had a breakdown. I was uh, not well. And I was in the middle of a meeting and I started feeling this tingling sensation in my arms. Um, felt like an elephant was standing on my chest. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was in my mid-30s. I'd never had any health issues. And, um, so one of my client people was like, Derek, are you okay? I was like, I'm not sure. I think I need to go to the restroom. So I went to the bathroom and I looked at myself and I was like, great. I was like, okay, I need to leave. I went out to the car. I was going to drive back to the hotel and I was just hit me like, uh, you shouldn't be driving. So I walked back in. I saw one of my teammates who wasn't from that local facility, but was part of a traveling team that did these implementations. I was like, could you take me to my hotel? I'm not feeling very well. She's like, sure. So we're driving and she's like, do you need to go to the emergency room? I was like, yeah, I think I do. So, so if you're casual. not, yes, yeah, so casual, <laughs> trained observers, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I went to the emergency room, and if you're not anxious already, like start telling the doctor that you've got like shortness of breath, tingling down your arms, and you feel pressure on your chest. So the first thing they do is a cardiac workup, which thank goodness uh, there wasn't a problem with my heart. He said, you're having a panic attack. He's like, everyone has their stress threshold and, and you've met yours. Uh, you know, here you could take these pills and go back to work. Now I'll have to say when they put the Ativan in my IV, everything within like five seconds was good again. So at that moment I was very thankful for modern, modern pharmaceuticals. Um, but something inside me knew that like, I didn't want that to become a lifestyle. And so I had to get my mom to come pick me up from Clearwater, drove back to her house. And I sat in a chair in her house for about three months. Tingling. Movie plots were stressing me out. Uh, I was put in touch with this, acupuncturist who does five elements, Dr. Worldsley style acupuncture. And she was a gift from heaven. Like she really was able to tell me some things that were, that made sense because I knew that something was really off. And I, I knew that I had to figure out what it was that I couldn't just mask it and, and keep doing what I was doing. And fortunately I was in the position where I could take that time off and, 
I had done well on that project and project manager basically let me work as little hours or as many hours as I wanted to with no real deliverables. Um, I had, I had kind of saved her career right before I had the meltdown. Um, it was a pretty high, it was a pressure cooker kind of project. And I, I showed up with an empty tank from the nightclub stuff and the previous go live. I didn't have any recovery time. So this acupuncture is basically, um, she had lots of other tools. Um, I don't think she needed to use the needles at all. But what she told me later was that I used the needles to match people's belief system. I've heard that before from other acupuncturists where they basically say like the same thing. Like people expect the needles or they want the needles. So they're actually, they'll put them in, but they're actually working in a different way. And it's just like giving the people what they want, but really doing what they need on the side. Yep. And I'd say some of us are doing that with structural integration. Like people expect us to do hands-on, but there's other things going on, which, which we'll get, get into that later. Well, can we can we touch on it now? Because I'm curious. Sure. I, that's the first time I've ever heard that about acupuncture, and I respect the the work. I've had it a fair amount of times. I've never really felt much from it, so I'm I'm curious. So, was do you feel like you just had the right person? Would you feel like you had just talk therapy, or was she channeling something else within the realm of? the acupuncture um, modality? Yes and yes. Um, this woman's very gifted. Uh, well, I'll start with the big aha moment for me. She, she also did something called uh, applied kinesiology where she did muscle testing. And so she could ask my body questions. She'd ask my body which point it wanted. Did it want moxibustion on it? Did it want a needle? Did it want a tuning fork? Like, you know, she used a lot of like Bach flower essence remedies and she was just well-rounded um with her offerings um but basically what she told me is she's like look this usually happens to people later in life but your crown chakra is opening and what you're doing with your life doesn't match that vibration so either i can work to numb you down and you can keep doing what you're doing or we can work to make some changes in your life that that was like the essence of her message. And at that point I was like, okay, let's make some changes because clearly uh, something's not working. And, and it's funny because like, if you break your leg, like, you know, within six weeks to six months, it's going to heal. You just have to stay off of it, let it heal, eat good food, let the time pass. But like when your psycho emotional self is like all out of sorts, <laughs> you start wondering like, is this a permanent thing that have, has happened? And, you know, what, what's, what's going on? Um, but I think back to your question, Nikki, I think, I mean, there's definitely the connection between the, the, the practitioner and, and the person receiving the work, right? So that's one thing. Um, I think there's some energetic things that if the, if the, practitioner is, and this is not just acupuncture, I think this is anyone that, that creates a, a healing space for people to attune to. I think those kind of things, I think there's a few layers of it, right? Like there's like just simple energetics of the body and you can talk about like what goes on physi physiologically that creates a little electromagnetic field. You can talk about blood flow. 
You can talk about fluid exchange. And then you can get into more finer things that are off the body. You know, some people have more psychic skills. They can see persons like karmic issues, past life, stuff like that. And, and then there's like a level of, of truth, which is outside of all of that would, that would be considered the illusion. Um, even though the psychic stuff is often heralded as like a cooler part of the illusion than, you know, fetching wood and carrying water, it's still all part of the dream. So that whole thing about matching the person's belief system, I think a lot of practitioners are able to, to do things uh, with people that maybe the person doesn't have to know the details of. And some of it might be the practitioner doing that with conscious intention. And I also think there's a, a layer of it that is just happening because there's time and a place. And if that person's meant to have some healing, the catalyst can come from that environment and the practitioner may not even be conscious of that. So I think there's a few layers to it. Yeah. I'll, I'll second that. And I'll also say as a callback, like for those listening, tune, tune into the episode we had with Michael Poland, where we sort of talked into some of that similar stuff about like, what is it we're actually doing in, in the space? So I'm going to throw a callback to that earlier episode just to mention that so that people listen more to us. But I fully, I mean, I agree. I agree with you. I, I, I've had numerous times where I've had people come up, like message me years later and be like, thank you. That thing you did actually had this whole other thing. And I was like, all right, I, I was a pawn in that whole structure. And that's great. I had no idea about any of that other stuff. And I'm glad that that had the positive effect uh, that it did. And luckily, I've never had anyone say the opposite of that. So thank you, people, for not emailing me about the negative effects. <laughs> I actually think it's very hard uh, to have a, a negative effect if you're someone that's working on yourself um, and, and you're approaching the work with you know, a, a good spirit and intention of, of your health and the other person's health. Um, you know, if we're talking about the very physical nature of structural integration, sure, it, you can hurt someone if you're not um, if you're not professional with how you contact people. Um, but but that's a very physical thing. Well, and it also sounds from you sharing your story that that you landed in the acupuncturist office at a critical moment, which you have already were explaining, but. You know, your two previous jobs in these tech, like when you're talking about helping sell the products of Coca-Cola and makeup and there, it just seems that you, you have the, you, the kind of the technology smarts, kind of the way to kind of step into the mainstream work world, but you have this internal drive to make sure it's really aligning to your, to your belief system. And, and that. Some people can kind of step in and out of that, no problem. But I think what often drives people who are choosing to be in the healthcare business, it really is coming from an authentic kind of lifestyle occupation and not something you can necessarily just show up for work and do your job and then come out of it. Yeah. I would agree. And I think for me, uh, I can look back and I know that that 10 series 
was the catalyst for this deeper awareness. It's just that when I received the 10 series, I wasn't at the place in my awareness where I knew all the levels that were being worked on. Hey, Jacksonville needed your nightclub. Right. You had to show up for that. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back, like after I kind of worked through what was being asked of me during the meltdown, which that's the best thing that ever happened to me looking back because it really stopped me in my tracks. And it's one of those things if when we don't hear the whispers, the hammer's coming <laughs> and I got a big hammer and, um, it, it's almost like it found me. It, it, a lot of the stuff that these days, I don't necessarily feel like I'm making a choice to do a lot of this stuff. It's like, it's showing up and I'm doing my best to say yes. Um, with some boundaries around that that are healthy. Um, it, reminds so, me, uh, it reminds me just a little about plug that famous now guru Eckhart Tolle had a very similar experience. You know, he was near suicidal when he sort of woke up in this experience and his life was this sort of mess and then had this profound experience that just completely shifted, shifted everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, and of course it's biased by my own experience with it, but I feel like structural integration, that 10 series can be a huge catalyst in one's life. And for some people it's going to be, they experience their body in a different way or they feel more ease or maybe they get in touch with the emotional side and how that affects their body or maybe they find their line or, but for me, I, I think it can be a catalyst for truth like capital T truth because it the physical body is so dense and it's the slowest to change of, of all the layers of our field by working on that layer, there's a chance to clear out a whole bunch of stuff that could take years in psychotherapy or years of meditation. I don't think it's an either or in everyone's path is different, but I do feel like structural integration can make the whole process faster. It has that potential. So that's kind of the approach I take when I teach. Um, I don't know if we want to jump there. I, I guess it's happening naturally. So I'll go ahead. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Go with what's natural. That's what we do. Everything always works out as it is. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and talk about this and then we can backtrack about like, how the school started and, and all that. Cause um, again, this is what's coming up now. I feel like the, I feel like that, what I just described about SI being the catalyst for huge spiritual growth and, and self-realization. I emphasize that in the global SI curriculum. Like it, it's as part and parcel to what we do as body mechanics and, you know, opening the core in session four. I really integrate that from, from day one, uh, and I, I know that like not every student, not every practitioner, not every recipient, uh, not all of us are going to wake up. There's a lot of grace involved in that, that, that we can't, uh, control. 
but I want to plant the seeds because I do think that structural integration can fast track a lot of growth and a lot clearing out a lot of uh, conditioning. So this capital T truth that you found with the SI work has brought you to found a school, the global SI is, could you share a little bit what the, what global SI is? Yeah. I, I first want to clarify something because structural integration, I didn't have, first thing I should clarify is my awakening is not abiding. I, I can't stay in that state all the time. Um, these days it's more present than it's not present, but there's still some things that, that pull me out of it. And, and that's what we work on. That didn't necessarily happen because of structural integration. Uh, I did other practices and, and it was my first trip to India actually that I had a, a real uh, shift in perspective that, that has stayed. Um, but looking back, Wait, was that shift? That shift was just don't eat food on the street. I'm guessing, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the joke in India, right? One drop of water can change your entire week. <laughs> um, no, it it, it it was a direct experience of a lot of things I had read in, in, in spiritual text. It it was. I always struggle with words for this, and, and I think that's common because it's as soon as we start using language, we, we kind of move into that dualistic nature. So, right, and and this is all this is all unfortunately non nameable. That's part of what it is. It's an experience that that doesn't. As soon as you give a name to it, you're in this this world versus being. Yeah, and that's you've already engaged the labeling capacity of the mind. Um, and, and I don't want to like come across that like I'm some saint or guru either. So like. Uh, it, it's just that I, I believe that structural integration saved me a lot of repetitions of other things and it cleared out a lot. Yeah. And just, um, I mean, out of my own curiosity, before the, before the structural integration, you, you hadn't had a spiritual practice of sorts, had you? That came afterwards? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And also so, for the for the listeners, I'll just say when you say the the SI was fast tracking it, how, I'm taking it to mean fast tracking spiritual growth, correct? Yes. Cool. And other growth. It was kind of like it was the first thing. Structural integration was the first practice that I was given that I was supposed to be aware of something besides my thoughts, and that was to become aware of my body and how my body moved and how I experienced my body. So already that began to lay down the neural tracks of where I placed my attention. And then, you know, I, I had the good fortune to, you know, I, I'm not the first person in, in the structural integration field that has pursued these kind of depths of spirituality. Um, and I've heard some of this stuff taught by various teachers, uh, but I, I think a lot of it is more of kind of the new age realm uh, of, you know, positive thoughts, manifestation, stuff like that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, so 
you know, I, I guess I'll take another jump here because that's what's coming. I remember going through the Rolf Institute and the things that were credited as primary influences for Dr. Rolf, although she studied many, many things, um, were yoga and osteopathy. So I had a curiosity when I graduated, okay, well, what was it from those practices that, that she learned? So I started going to a yoga studio, the girl I was dating at the time, I went down to Brazil to do my um, clinical phase, unit three. And when I came back, she was active in this uh, yoga studio. So I started going with her. And at first it was an intellectual thing. Okay, well, what did Dr. Rolf see in yoga? And then it started uh, doing something different to me. Um, it started making me more sensitive. Uh, and it gave me the, it gave me the language of like the Hindu tradition because I was fortunate that the yoga shala that I went to, they taught all eight limbs, not just on it wasn't just about the body. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I've met a lot of people that have, you know, practiced yoga for 10 years and they've never delved into meditation or they've never, uh, studied spiritual texts or they've, you know, only done a little bit of pranayama. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I had that broad exposure to like actual eight limbs of yoga right away. Um, and it gave me a vocabulary. Uh, and then later I, I met my wife and she, she is a teacher. She, uh, she'd be a colleague of like Adi Ashanti, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Hamid, that is the founder of the diamond approach. So, I feel like that yoga time at least gave me a foundation for understanding what she was talking about because I had no clue what she was talking about. And I, she kind of yanked me out of this like bliss phase that I was just entering with yoga. And I probably could have spent 10 years there because it feels good. Right. But it's not actually truth, right? Those bliss things are, are care. It's, it's like we get a new opening. There's a contrast in our nervous system. So it releases all these chemicals that feel good but you can get stuck there because you're well, just trying to have that. That's, that's part of the yoga path actually is like, do you get stuck in these areas or do you go on? And a lot of people do get stuck. You have the different levels, the different realms and getting stuck in that is part of it. Oh, I've reached it. I'm here. But it's like, eh, eh. Yeah. And you know, I, I think one common misconception is that like spiritual practice is to make my phenomenal life better. And it's not. That's a bummer. <laughs> I know a lot of people are going to be bummed to hear that. <laughs> one, one, of my, one of my teachers who uh, is said, said to be awakened, who's to say when he was first waking up was uh, basically his wife said, you know, you're an ass. <laughs> You've become such an ass because he was in this such a, a realm and he, he hadn't been able to, to integrate that into – he, he was struggling within that, um, but not aware so much that he was struggling because he was kind of in this, like seeing everything as it is. Yeah. And it took him a while to integrate back where she had, at one point his wife had said, oh, you're finally back. And he was like, where did I go? He, he wasn't, it was still that, that process. It hadn't made his life necessarily easier. In some ways it probably made it harder until he was able to. Yeah. Absolutely. And you guys I, are reminding me of a, a funny analogy, a scene that I'm in Boulder. And I, I think this is, kind of funny, but there's, um, it was written up in some local mom blog thing 
but a mom was talking about how they were, you know, her and her um, partner were raising their child to be very conscious around, you know, food and the environment and, and just, just uber aware. And what it turned the night, sorry, and the kids grown up this way and then seen them as a, a child interacting with other people. And they realized that their kid turned into an asshole because so judgy on what other people are eating, how other people are living and has lost this compassion. And yeah. it was just really interesting to hear this mom talk about like, we were trying so hard to raise this kid to be so well aligned and so well aware of his surroundings and who he is. But then we just turned him into this like conceited environmental jerk right, right. <laughs> so note to, note to parents let your kids eat junk food it'll make them better later on well i think it just really i mean that story came up to me when you're when just kind of talking about the, being in that bliss and that that constant state of bliss yes it feels good but that's not life right but like we have to be resilient adaptable to all the things that are happening and the the, the not so good and and also the, the good to be able to hold the balance. Yeah. And, um, it, it's interesting cause my wife's path was, uh, Advaita Vedanta, which is Sanskrit for the theory of non-duality. And a big practice there is there's a denial of the body and it's, I see the use of it for a phase because it breaks the attachment and identification with our physical structure. And so it's been interesting, like, since I met her, she incorporates more body stuff into her satsangs with people. And I incorporate more mind management into my sessions with people. Um, but I think this is where structural integration can play such a big part, because what I've noticed in her teaching, she, she kind of had a path that was crazy, bells and whistles, like brain circuits fried, like at one point she didn't have any thoughts for two years and she had to have people like remind her to take a shower and she'd wake up in the morning and have to look at her passport to remember who her name was and that kind of thing. Um, but she is pulled these days, like Westerners don't have, you know, most of us are householders. We can't all go off to the cave or live in an ashram. So how do we integrate in a progressive path versus the direct path. And I think that's where our work can come in because like someone that's having these blissful experiences and there's nothing wrong with them. It's, they're kind of like little carrots we're given to kind of keep us interested until we get to the point where we have no choice. It's just pulling us. Um, but teaching people to be grounded in, in this pro progressive integration along the way, it allows spirituality to not in denial of our humanity but actually incorporates it so i i think that's speaks to what some of the things you you all were commenting on just then yeah and I, i've actually been trying to get one of my teachers who's a non-dual teacher but from the tantra shaivas community to come in and go actually into some of the uh, the embodied practices that, that they were doing because they they being the the kashmir shaivites because they were um not for enunciates, they were actually for householders, as opposed to most of the practices before were being for, for renunciates. So the practices were in some way easier because you didn't have the responsibility of like, well, you got to take care of your kids right now. 
but we're still working to get him on. So for right now, we'll listen to you. <laughs> I'll do. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's a little bit about my path with structural integration, my path with spirituality, and, and how I see how they fit together and how that shows up in Global SI's curriculum. Um, you know, prior to Global SI, I, for years, worked in a private practice and took a lot of classes. Uh, finally, my wife was like, stop taking classes and start teaching. <laughs> and um, I was going through Dr. Sanit's osteopathic program. Uh, he's an American DO, but he only wanted to teach the traditional hands-on osteopathy. So he started a school in Canada called the Osteopathic College of Ontario. So I went through the program with him. Um, and he started encouraging me to teach about halfway through. And I went to this Asian osteopathic conference in Korea. And there I was introduced to some of the people that bring him to teach because he teaches all over the world. And a couple of people saw that I was a structural integrator. And the next thing I know, I, I went and taught my first class in the Philippines. And um, on that there was a, a, a year when my wife was giving a retreat in Truvanamalai, which is in the south of India. And Dr. Sanit was teaching a class that I needed in my program in the north of India, right in that same time frame. So I went to uh, Punjab, and it was an advanced cranial class. And I met some classmates there. And after one of the things we were doing, this this one woman was had a really bad headache. And at that point I'd already studied cranial with a couple teachers, um, primarily Jim Asher. And so I, I did some things and her headache went away and she's like, that's not what we learned in class. I was like, no, I, I've had other teachers. So she was asking me, you know, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, we kept in touch and she wound up being the host that brought me to teach the global SI program there. And, uh, so again, it's just one of these like unfolding things, right? Um, once I taught in the Philippines, then the interest in India got really high and, you know, that's kind of a social media <laughs> phenomena. Um, and then the, the one in India stuck, uh, to this point, we haven't been able to, to keep the one in the Philippines going, um, for whatever reason, uh, some of it's economics, some of it is, uh, they're getting a, a big dose of skepticism, another byproduct of Facebook. So, you know, some people say what we do is quackery and, and that's kind of, unfortunately that the message they're getting there now, but I'm hopeful that will change at some point and we can go back in there. But the great news is that we uh, graduated our first class of structural integrators in India last December. And um, there's 17 really sharp people. They're all PTs. We had a couple Ayurvedic practitioners uh, in the course, but um a couple of them weren't able to finish. Uh, one had a death in the family and, you know, it happens sometimes. But, um, yeah, we've got some really strong practitioners there and I'm excited to see how it spreads. I think they're going to feed back to us in a different way because they're much more academic. Uh, some of them are very research-oriented and a few of them work in hospitals. So they're using some of the structural integration principles and techniques in cases that we'll never see in the U.S. Um, I had one student. As an example, there was a lady uh, in the ICU. He works out in a rural area, 
and the doctors, she had low blood oxygenation and she had been in there for a week. And finally the doctors, after doing all their protocols said, Hey, let's, let's, let's call Suman in and see if, uh, what he can do manually, which that right there blows my mind because I don't know of any doctors in the U S that are going, Hey, let's call in so-and-so and see what they can do manually. But anyway, he went in and he did, uh, two of the techniques I teach as part of the basic script for section one, freeing the breath and her blood oxygenation went up and within two days she was out of the hospital. And he, that of course, he is so awesome. Yeah. It's really awesome. And of course he was like the local hero and like, uh, but maybe, maybe it's stories like that coming out of India that will help, you know, our work progress into Absolutely. more main, mainstream. I mean, we had a conversation with, um, Oh God, what's, what's Gail's last name? Gail with the bra. Wetzler. Gail yes. Wetzler. And talking about how, how now we're with all these different modalities, how we can move into this new field of being of better support with each other, being in line with each other and integrating our work rather than we all kind of stay in our own little worlds and camps and be like, Oh, we do it this way. There's always a chance of sure. I bet those doctors had some really great Western medicine tools to apply, but that they had, they, they had their own personal roadblock and now it was time to integrate something else. Yep. Yeah. What amazing healthcare system we could have when it's, when we stop being so segregated and yes, choose to territorial. be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, yeah. also second callback, tune into episode two where we had Zorab on who was a rolfer working in the Southern India as well. Um, which Derek, I'll talk to you later about, about him as well. He was working at a clinic in somewhere in the South. I forget. He's somewhere in Tamil Nadu, I believe. Had some good experiences working at a, a clinic where they would bring him in to, to do stuff and very open to, to other to like, okay, well, we've done as much as we can. We need help. Like, let's look at something else. Yeah. And that's been something that's really neat to uh, teach in other cultures is to see the difference between our culture and their culture. Like here we have to like prove something in order for someone to try it. That's not everyone. Obviously we have people that come to us that that don't need double blind studies. Um, But there's an openness there. Like hands-on healing has been in their culture for a long time. Uh, Spirituality and its relationship to health has been in their culture for a long time. So there's an openness there that that's lovely and, and refreshing for, for me because, you know, sometimes here, you know, when you get that call from a potential client, it's almost like there's a, you need to evangelize, right? <laughs> You've got to like work yourself up into this like uh, state where, you know, you're telling them what, they're going to get out of it, but it's tricky because everyone gets something different out of it. And, you know, you're basically selling an exploration when what most people want is a guaranteed result. Oh, but I like that. I, I got sold on the exploration. Yeah. Certain people are, are very open to it. And maybe that, I, I don't know that I, maybe our work will always stay there. That's probably a good thing, but 
maybe I'm uh, more wounded from Florida conversations than you might be from New York and, and Colorado conversations. Well, I mean, I think for me, this is the only career career I really know. I had a moment where um, I was in college, I was going to do pre and post production, but I was like, you know what? I need to, I need a ski bum for a year. I need like my gap year that I took after graduating college. Cause I was like, I, I have all this education, but I still don't know what I want to do with myself. <laughs> so yeah. wait, wait, um, you, you, you were going to do pre and post production and yet I do all the pre and post production <laughs> for the podcast. Yeah. Why did I not know this before? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, um, so it, but you get used to, yeah. So trying to like build practice and we were these weird rolfers, like just gotten, it's the only way I know how to pitch myself is kind of in this, this realm of exploration. But I recently kind of used that analogy with a, um, a potential movement client. So it's hard for me to call myself a personal trainer because I don't really, I train and I can do that type of work. But with all my different fitness modalities, it's a, this, it's an exploration. And so, um, so it was really cool because it was to a, a, New, a New Yorker. And, um, but she's also in film. So I think she, she was able to hold that, that creative aspect of it. But it becomes so hard to, to explain because it doesn't yeah. have to be one thing. I'm not going to just do Pilates or just do asana or kettlebells. I mean, we can, we'll do an exploration with what you, what you bring to me. What, what do you want to explore in your body? And we'll find a way to get there. But it's not yeah. going to be linear because that's right. not that fun. That's right. That was, that was a challenge early on uh, when I was teaching in India because most of the students were PTs, so they're very linear and they come from a, you know, a medical background. So there was some attrition in the beginning for sure. And, you know, I remember the first couple of classes, I, there's one guy I remember, uh, he had a subspecialty in, in neurology. And his questions, I could appreciate them because, you know, I've probably peppered my teachers with these kind of questions, but it was so specific. And I was like, I'm intentionally starving your left brain right now because I need you to shift into your heart. <laughs> and I know it's frustrating you, but I'm going to keep doing it because if you want to be good at structural integration, you have to make this shift now. And that answer, he didn't come back for the, the next module, but I could see around the room when I made that statement that there were some people that completely got it. Like that was moments too. It's just one of those things you, you can't please everyone. And this work is not for everyone, but the mm -hmm. ones that it is for that it's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing and to do. Newsflash for those listening that, um, India is an incredibly spiritual country, so the people grow up in that spirituality around them. However, most Indians I met when working and living in India, they don't have meditation practices. They don't have those as a daily part of their life. They've done meditation. They go to temple, but they're not necessarily steeped in that, but enough that they understand if you bring in aspects of spirituality. It's a part of the, the culture. It's not necessarily how people... Before I went there, my thoughts of, of what it was were very, very different. So if you mention like that coming into the heart, they'll, I think, get that a little easier because 
not that it's a daily part of their life per se, and you may have had different experiences, but because that's in the cultural fabric of which they they grow up in generally. I mean, there's numerous different sub-small religions within there, but having similar roots in the Vedic and, and Shramanic past, which... Yeah, and I, when you say that, it, it makes me think of the distinction between a religion and spiritual practice. They are, are steeped in a lot of things that our religions don't have, which include, you know, offerings and meditation and maybe even breath work and some kind of thing like that. But not everyone has... I, I think when a spiritual opening comes, you once it grabs you, you, you no longer have a choice. It's just something that you have to do and you're pulled to do. And I, I think that's an important distinction that you made. So like while they have kind of the cont- cultural context for it, it may not be something that has bitten them yet fully. Yeah. So just, I guess to kind of, to go back, uh, like what, what prompted you to start global SI? Um, what was it that you were like, I mean, you sort of said how you kind of got pulled there, but was there besides just someone saying like, Hey, why don't you come down there? Was what, and maybe that was it. Or was there like an inner sense of you to be like, I want to spread the work of SI or I want to just teach in other cultures or of something else. I I think the, uh, the call to teach was already there. Um, and it was something I was kind of ignoring. Like, you know, this is a tricky community. There's a lot of people with a lot of years experience that that know a lot, that have studied a lot of different things. Um, And sometimes, uh, you know, you can see it on our Facebook forums and the older channels. Uh, It can be a tough crowd. So I, I think anyone, when you start to put yourself out there as a teacher, you might do so with a little trepidation. Um. So I think that's the reason, like, I had kind of not acted on it. And then, as I mentioned, my wife was like, stop spending money on classes and start teaching. Like, that's where your next learning is going to be, is teaching the courses. And then when Dr. Sanon also encouraged me, I I think that kind of solidified my confidence. So then I could kind of let my brain and my personality get out of the way and, and, and let this thing that had been bubbling come through. Um. And then, you know, the situation just unfolded. I went to that osteopathic conference in Korea and I had a direct invitation at that point to come in and teach. So then that forces one to create a curriculum. And <laughs> um, So it wasn't so much about developing in, it wasn't so much about working in developed countries as much as the sort of developed countries happened to open up to you and sort of that's how it sort of unfolded. Yeah, I can't say that I sat down and said, hey, I want to go teach only in developed countries. Um, I will say that I definitely have some gypsy blood in me. I've been to over 50 countries. Um, I love traveling. I love, you know, eating crazy food and and trying to learn a few words in the language everywhere I go and and meeting people that... I like everything about traveling (laughs) Um, and and experiencing different cultures. So I think that set me up for it. I had worked internationally when I was doing consulting, although that was uh, in Europe. Um, I had worked with a lot of international teams in the corporate world. So I I think I had a preparation, like, 
you know, I think if you took like an American that doesn't have a passport and said, Hey, you're going to, no matter how good of a structural integrator they were and said, Hey, you're going to go teach in a foreign country. That's going to be a hard, um, mountain to climb. Uh, if that's, if you don't have experience in how to blend in and, and how to, um, how to be open to what those cultures have to offer, even if it rubs against your comfort zone about like the way should things should be, or, you know, we get pumped full of a lot of information growing up in the U S that like our way is the best and it's, it's, it should be. Um, so you have to drop that. Uh, I remember studying in Brazil and, uh, one of my movement teachers, Monica Caspari, she's passed away now. Um, she, at one point she's like, Derek, you're uh, a good example of a, a traveling American because you don't try to make us feel less than. And I thought that was a, a great compliment from a, a beautiful person. Um, but it kind of made me think like, okay. So then I started kind of, you know, you always hear about that, like, loud American traveling, usually hear about it in Paris, right? Because <laughs> the Parisians don't put up with it. And people are like, those people in France aren't friendly. I'm just like, well, <laughs> maybe if you tried to learn a couple yeah. words in French. <laughs> For travelers out there, like there's almost nothing worse than being called an American sometimes because of what, not of who we are, but that, or an Australian, because uh, they have these stereotypes, which most of us, a lot of us who travel aren't, but those who are, it's just like, oh, a dagger. Whereas when you have that experience, like Monica is saying to you, you know, oh, you're like the the good American, the traveling American. When I was in Mexico and my my like chef where I was working, the house cook was like, you know, you're not a gringo. It was like, oh, yes, I've, I've achieved something in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think it takes a, a certain amount of like, nuance to be able to navigate those kind of situations. And um, so I, I think that kind of, you know, back to the question, like, I, I think those kind of preconditions existed in my life experience that, that made uh, branching out into developing countries um, possible. And then, you know, of course, like once it showed up in my lap, then it was on, right? Like, <laughs> then it's like, okay, like, what do I want this school to, to be like? What, what kind of curriculum do I want to have? And how, how best do we serve? And then it kind of became a mission. It's like, okay, this is a huge opportunity. Like, there's so many places that don't have structural integration. They don't have practitioners. They don't have schools. They don't even know what it is. So, so um, can you talk a little bit about the, the curriculum and and if you don't mind a little bit, maybe the politics, considering that we're graduates of the Rolf Institute that does, or the Dr. Ida Rolf Institute. Yes. Which kind of holds the, the flag in the, in the moon. We hold the territory and right. how, how you navigate that. I mean, I, I'm proud that I graduated from that, from that school, but I also am very open to, at this point in my growth and with the work, it's kind of like there's a lot of different schools for a lot of different people. And yeah. but Nikki, so, Nikki, Nikki, in in the words words of uh, one of Ida Rolf's uh, 
I guess teachers, do we hold the map or do we hold the territory? <laughs> Krzybski. That's a great question. I have a lot to say about that topic. <laughs> Let's have a chat about it. Let's have a chat about it. I also am proud that I graduated from the Idaroff Institute. I had some great teachers. Um, I've got some great colleagues. I think uh, the, I keep getting the name confused. I always called it the Rolf Institute, but the Dr. Idaroff Institute. You can call it the Rolf Institute. We all know what it is. We like that name, okay. I think, a little more. Anyway, it's just, you can just say the Institute. We're, we're, that's the old way. That's fine. So I think they play a very important role, right? It, it's it's kind of like the 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 big fish, the oldest school. It's got Dr. Rolf's hands in it, right? That's important. Um, equally as important, I think, is the guild because they're the orthodoxy and they have done their best to preserve their version of, you know, or Emmett and Peter's version of what Dr. Rolf said. There's still one generation of filter in there because it's what they perceived, she said. But I think they do the best job of keeping that traditional 10 series and her traditional uh, tracking. And uh, I think they're holding kind of the original uh, scrolls, if you will, of her work. I think that's really important. Um, I don't necessarily think that the stranglehold around the, the trademark is serving the profession. I, understand that they have to do that because of the nonprofit nature of the organization and the nature of trademark law, that if they don't protect it, that they can lose it. Um, so, but I think there's been a lot of scarcity thinking in the community that maybe was appropriate pre-internet because these are the days where you know, there were secrets and, you know, you did meet in a circle and light a fire and share these oral traditions. And that's not just the case for raw finger structural integration. That's the case for all of these ancient traditions. Some of them a lot more ancient than structural integration. <laughs> but these days you don't have to, you know, walk out into the forest and hope that your guru is sitting there. You can get on the YouTube and watch pretty much anything you want for better or for worse. You know, there's probably something to be said for going through the traditional stages and then getting the higher teachings. Once you've mastered those versus giving you all the higher teachings at the beginning and, and you just taking it as an intellectual study and not actually having a direct experience of it. So this isn't just happened for structural integration. This has happened for many things. But that scarcity mentality, I don't think, has been completely shed. So when we're holding on tight to something, uh, it doesn't allow us to expand. So my whole thing is that we need more practitioners of structural integration, period. Because we don't have a critical mass yet. There's not enough of us that we can be a household name like Pilates or yoga or chiropractic. And so if we can't create that critical mass to fund an organization like IOSI so that they can begin to advertise, 
or, you know, it happens through paid advertising, but it also happens organically through as more practitioners are birthed and do good work in their community, then more people learn about it. We're way too small to be playing these games with each other. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I always found it frustrating. You know, I taught for a little bit at the Institute with, for the foundations. And, um, I, you know, students would always ask like, what, what kind of learning materials can I, can we buy and how else can I continue my studies when I'm not in training or like on physical campus? And the Institute didn't have anything that I always was referring. I was like, all right, we want to learn more about body reading. Tom Myers has a DVD. You want a little bit more of touch Eric Dalton or art rigs. And, you know, I would find myself, you know, promoting everybody but us. And I kept on asking, like, why don't we have any DVDs, any tutorials or any of that stuff? And I always came back to um, this. We don't want our secret out. And I'm kind of like, the secret's out. There's uh -huh. already Rolfers explaining <laughs> in detail what the tin series is. It's on the World Wide Web. It's out there. Yeah. Like, yes. why this is a way we can make income. This is a way that other people, you know, massage therapists. When I went to, I, you know, I became a massage therapist in New York so I could practice rolfing legally. And what a sucker punch that, you know, I got. Because when they started the class about all the different type of modalities of for touch, rolfing came up. Who did they, who did they say attach that to? Tom Myers. There was no yep. Ida Roth. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this came from a woman. <laughs> My so, students in India asked me who came first, Tom Myers or Ida Roth. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. And so and kudos, kudos to Tom for being a great entrepreneur and being a great voice for our work. Absolutely. Tom's yeah, I mean, that. In a lot of ways, he's my first introduction to Rolfing, more or less, was with Tom. Somebody had said, you should see a rolfer. And then I had started reading Anatomy Trains and I was like, oh, he's a rolfer. Kudos to Tom. And also in a lot of ways, he's done good for us. We're not bashing you, Tom. We still want you to come on. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's an interesting situation uh, because I think IASI could be the vehicle to expand the work but I know when I went to the Ralph Institute, what I was told was that IASI was a, something that Tom Myers dreamed up to give his school legitimacy. So I was left feeling like, well, I, I'm a graduate of the Ralph Institute. I don't need to join IASI. Um, and now that I have a school and I joined and I got my school's curriculum approved and now I'm volunteering on a committee, I've met some amazing people and there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom in our community that aren't from graduates of the Rolf Institute, but are from other schools that they're doing a great job. And, uh, and that that's, that's been a part of this podcast has been to sort of unify and, or to be like, okay, you know, we had uh, a few weeks ago, Alesh from the, the guild in Europe and he, we have, just hearing what he hearing what he has to say and his approach, and then also having, I mean, we haven't had any Heller work or so many people yet, but we, I, we'd love to. And sort of saying, okay, 
really it's all about what do we have in common, not what separates us. But before this, I mean, I definitely had that. Well, I graduated from the Rolf Institute, so we hold to a higher standard. We are a better institution than these others. No, we're not. No, we have a different way and we would work better together and being aligned as opposed to against, especially as you're saying, we haven't reached critical mass. So we're basically, we're like the the white blood cells attacking the red blood cells, not realizing like, no, we're actually on the same team. Let's, uh, let's try to get the system back into homeostasis and improve. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I, I don't know how to solve it. There's still a lot of old wounds from the guild split that aren't healed in an older generation that most of us younger uh, generation don't have a dog in that fight and would like to just see it heal. <laughs> um, I think there's a great opportunity with the uh, board certification through IOSI to make that the standard. Now, I don't expect the Rolf Institute to, they're in a tough situation. Like the, the board, the executive director, like they have a job and that's how the system's worked out. I, I think if, if we were to fix it, it would have to be something like the Rolf Institute decides to sell the rights to the trademark to, to IOSI. I don't know if that's possible, but in my wildest fantasy of, of how like this becomes a, a profession that people know about, something like that has to happen so that we begin to, instead of, you know, we're all basically doing a flavor of the same thing, but we all have 10 different names for it. That's right. not helping. Well, and I think that, it doesn't, I think the Rolf Institute can keep the name. I mean, that is a point of differentiation. And I think same with Tom Myers, he has anatomy trains. I mean, I think this school, I think what's unique about having so many different schools is there's so many different ways of learning. Like I did a Pilates training and I was so grateful where I landed because it was much more of a structural integrative Pilates training. I'll give it a shout out but to was, Kelly Kane. It was still a Pilates training. and I think It was that's, still Pilates. But the, right. I think of like structural integration, I, I think is the word that really should be worldwide. And then within that, you have your subcategories and point of differentiation because right, there's but, so but many be, ways to structurally because, integrate. Because it started out as Rolfing, there is, for some people, there is more of that that name and association. And so that, that legacy has sort of built in one way. And then I think sort of later structural integration started, started to come out. Although the original name was, you know, Rolfing structural integration, Rolfing is what stuck. So, so many people know it as, as that, that it just, the benefit of Rolfing in my experience is it gets you in the door one step quicker, that extra step. I'm a Rolfer. Okay. Versus I'm a structural integrator. Pause the door. What is that? It's like Rolfing. Oh, okay. So that initial step, is like, oh, I've, I know this. I've heard of this. Um, that's how I'm hearing it. I don't know if that's sort of where you're coming from, Derek, or a little different. Yeah, I think I, I, I mentioned that because I don't, th I don't think there's. I think I'm presenting an exploration of how do we come together without the asking the Rolf Institute to do the unquestionable. Yeah, there's there's no way. So instead of like, let that one go and let's, as all these different schools come together, we are branding structural integration. And I think that really supports what 
the, the school that you've founded, Derek, and what um, Tom Myers has done and what Ed Malpin did in um, California. And it, yeah. it gives room to, sorry to kind of get on the horse on this, but it gives room to of the movement practitioners that are structural integrated minded. Yeah. I think that the way that we have to do that is for people to um, start requiring their graduates to become board certified structural integrators. And that's going to take a lot of people being willing to invest in something that they may not necessarily see the reward for right away. They just, that committee has done great work and they've made it where that test can be taken at Pearson view testing centers. Whereas before, you know, it was twice a year in Boulder or maybe, you know, somewhere else. So people had to like take a flight and come in for a pilgrimage to take this test. But now they've made it where you can go to a local testing center and take it. So that's huge. If we could get, that to become the standard because the, the trick is like structural integration is not a term that can be trademarked. So, I mean, even in India, I had to kick a couple students out of the program because they were starting to teach structural integration and they had not even graduated. That's pretty common in India. So it's, it's not unique to structural integration. Um, so that's part of my approach and kind of like my global SI blueprints is that we use the board certification exam as a way to one measure the quality of the, the curriculum and, you know, support a standard across these schools. And two, it, it becomes a way in these countries where intellectual property is not valued uh, to create a differentiator between the copycat programs that will happen and the schools that um, aspire to the standards of the international community. It sounds like you're holding to a higher standard. <laughs> Can I say that? Is that trademark? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and all that said, like, I appreciate all the work that the Rolf Institute does. I mean, there's a huge faculty with a variety of viewpoints, and, you know, they've navigated this field for decades. Um, I had a, a little bit of a interesting situation because when I started teaching in India, immediately the students started saying that they were studying rolfing. And I was like, oh my God, stop, stop, time out. So I said, because they said, well, every time we search structural integration on the web, rolfing comes up. And that's what our patients see. And I was like, okay, well, here's a compromise. So I knew the graduates of the guild were able to say Rolf method. So I said, you can call the work Rolf structural integration thinking it was, it's not a trademark term. Um, so a few weeks later, I got a nice, uh, legal packet from my alma mater <laughs> where they were using some of my yearly uh, membership fees to, uh, legally, uh, entangle me which was disappointing because i had actually reached out to them when before I, I went to the philippines to see if there was a way that we could work together because i want my students to have access to more than one teacher um 
And it was a good conversation, I thought, you know, but I think we hit a point at which basically I had the choice that I, I could become a Rolf Institute faculty member and then I could work within their rules to do these programs. Uh, but it felt cumbersome, like their business model and what I would have to uh, give up in terms of flexibility and how the programs were run. That along with, oh, so my grandfather used to say, you've got to strike while the iron is hot. And I felt like if I delayed for six months to a year while I was doing the, the faculty training that I would miss this opportunity. Um, so I was disappointed in that, that I didn't just get a phone call from, from the executive director, from the board chair saying, hey, we've noticed that you're doing this, uh, even though it's not the trademark terms, it's very similar. We'd appreciate it if you stopped. I would have been open to that conversation because as I just described, I was trying to keep the students from using the trademark terms. Um, so that was a little disappointing because I felt I had reached out. I had some personal relationships that it would have been easy to pick up the phone and at least make that a first conversation instead of going straight to the lawyers. So in any case, all that got worked out. Um, the students know that they can't use the word Rolf. I'm still not clear on why the guild can do it and why they can't. And truthfully, um, Probably there to keep the peace with the, the, with the, with the being of the split to kind of. Yeah. So maybe there's something specific. Um, I was under the presumption that anyone, if, if you are a structural integrator could say Rolf structural integration, that Rolf structural integration was not trademark. And that was allowed because I believe when I was going through, and I, I could be wrong when I was going through phase from one to two, or maybe even two to three, where I wasn't certified yet as a rolfer, but I was in the process. And they said, well, what do you call it? Right. So in phase one, you call it skillful touch, but no one's going to come to skillful touch. It's a horrible name for like, Hey, do you want to be skillfully touched? I'm going to pass yeah. on that. That they said you could, I believe they said you could do Rolf structural integration, or you could say structural integration because you didn't have to be certified to be a structural integrator. You had to be certified to be a certified structural integrator. And yeah, I believe that they had said you could do Rolf, that that word wasn't trademarked, but maybe not. So just that conversation there, just no wonder there's confusion in the marketplace, right? <laughs> well, they're going to be but, but, way more triggered with someone who's starting a school versus uh, someone who's paying the tuition and eventually going to be a certified Rolfer. But I, I really love yeah. what you say, actually. The more I think about it is like, if we have... Okay, you go to the Rolf Institute, you go to the Guild, you go to Hellowork, you go to somewhere, you go to wherever you go, you go to MA Trains, and you get certified from that school. But you also have to get certified from the uh, the BCSI, the the EASI certification board. Like yeah. that does bring us so much closer together. So you still have your specialty. I'm a Rolfer, I'm an MA Trains, I'm a this, I'm certified in that. But you also have this group that is together that is also like a bringing us together e pushing us forward to think more along other lines it it's a really hearing it now it, it makes a lot of sense it's where we have to go if we want the profession to grow because there's no way the Rolf institute gives up the trademark or i don't think i also would have the money if they were going to sell it uh so there's been some great work done to, to get this test standardized and now it's available in, in local places um, 
And I, I mean, coming from being certified as a massage therapist in New York, although that was, you know, I did that to be a legal rolfer, I have a little bit of pride in that because I had to, I went to the Swedish Institute. I had, so I had to pass whatever the, you know, their certifying exam. And then I had to sit for the New York City State Board, which is of the highest standard for the, you know, the United States. I think New York, California, maybe Florida. But yeah. I can go to any state. I, for me, I'm a, I'm a certified massage therapist in Colorado. All I had to do is submit paperwork yeah. because I have the highest standard. Of, I mean, that was a, a, a challenging test to take. And I, yeah. um, I, didn't, I haven't sat with um, IASI because, quite honestly, I, I know of it at the time because I was already so well into my practice. The idea of sitting for an exam was like, why? But it's on my list to yeah. do. And for <laughs> full disclosure, I haven't taken it yet myself. Um, I have. I, I can, good for you. All right. One of us can speak to it. It's also, I will tell you this. It's not, it's not easy because it's, and this is one of the things that's so beautiful about it, is it makes you learn about other practices besides your own. So you have to learn about heller work. You have to learn about Soma. You have to learn about Hakomi. You have to learn about anatomy trains. You learn about what the different, um, okay, the 10 series, What where does the 10 series differ from 11 series to a 13 series? What, uh, where, um, sorry, 12 series. And so it's actually a, a beautiful thing because it gives you access so that when you meet an anatomy trains person. You say, okay, let's have a let's have an SI meeting at a bar and let's talk about, you know, our, our trade and our passion. You already are more connected. They say, okay, so you do a 12 series. Tell you know, I've read a little bit, but now, you know, tell me a little bit more, as opposed to like, so what is anatomy trains and, and having to feel each other out more. You already are more connected. And it's so it's not an easy test. It's actually one of the most annoying things about the test is that some of the questions are, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. There's just an answer that is a better answer. And that stuff, I get stuck. Well, this could mean this and this and that. So it's, it's not easy. Um, I'm really glad I, I took it. And here's the thing is, I am a rolfer and a board certified structural integrator. And I use both of those. And they have a different meaning to me for yeah. both. And, and I'm proud of both of them equally in a, in a different way. And what made you decide to take it? Was that something that was encouraged in the Rolf Institute? Or it, was is that partly, that- it was partly encouraged. My thought was I work internationally a lot. So being internationally certified had, had a meaning. Some states, I didn't know where I'd be living in some states, count IASI, but wouldn't, call, wouldn't count the, um, the Rolf certification as enough to be licensed as a massage practitioner or body worker or whatever. Um, but I also... I, I'm, it's just sort of my nature is to be like, what more can I learn? Um, how can I learn more? And so there was something about that. And I think in, I think in my class, maybe one other person took it. I'm, I'm not positive. If, and I think one other person took it because they had something, if you take it within six months after graduating, you can save. It's, it's a lot cheaper. But the class before me, I think the whole class took the Aussie. Most of them passed. I don't remember the exact numbers, but their whole class took it. So okay. it was not necessarily recommended, but it wasn't saying don't do it. So it was something in between. Good. I think if all the schools encourage their graduates and if we can get the uh, alumni from each school to, to get on board, then we've got it. That's trademarked. 
And that's something that we can brand and it includes structural integration. I mean, it's very straightforward. Where structural integration is tricky because anyone can go tomorrow and say that they're a structural integrator. Like it's, you can't trademark it. It's, it's not specific enough of a term. But I go back to like, so what? The more people who say it, the more people who play with it and try to, to incorporate, incorporate that in their, their professional life. It's still, of course, in good ethics and practice, but it's the same thing with like how yoga is, you know, worldly known and there's so many different ways of learning it and that there's all really great ways. Like I, I loved my yoga training, but I'm, I'm definitely more of an asana practitioner and don't practice all the eight limbs. And I just think it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm just more adamant about let's get structural integration known as a household term. And then all the little subgroups, because the truth is what you've already said is people, if they do their research on all the different schools, people will choose a school that best suits them for their learning style or what their needs are, or what they want to get out of it. And, um, and that's how it should be more, more diversity. I don't know. Again, I, I, in my, in my short stint of teaching, I always, I, I would come across students and be like, wow, you would be good at this, but this, the way we teach it isn't ideal. Like they probably are more of the experiential, less, you know, about um, the body reading, kind of more of like, let's, let's kind of be off, the off body type of structural integrator than in the tissue. Yeah. Two things come to mind there. The, the argument is always thrown up about like Pilates and how they lost the trademark. And I always laugh when I hear that because everyone knows what Pilates is. <laughs> Anyone yeah. that has any health uh, bias or inclination in their life, they have heard of Pilates. They've heard of yoga. So yeah, I mean, you can, again, that scarcity mentality, well, we own this trademark and, and we don't want uh, people to, there could be bad practitioners out there using our name. Well. I'm sure there's bad Pilates teachers and the market figures that out. So if you Absolutely. go to someone. Absolutely. Those bad people, they yeah. might be borrowing a name, but if they're not good at what they're doing or they're shady, they're not, they're going to not be in business for very long. Cause yeah. you know, as you say, in you, in, in training, your client, your clientele is going to be built by, you know, the, your foot traffic. And it, it's the opposite in yoga. If you're shady, you become a guru for a while. And then about 30 years later, you get called out for being a pedophile or a, a rapist or whatever it is. So it's the opposite in yoga. And that's, that's why yoga and Pilates are so different all the time. <laughs> well, and I see it too in the gyrotonic community, the gyrotonic, gyrokinesis, great method. And they're pretty um, tight with how their work is spread. I mean, they're, they're like on it like hawks. If anything, any clip of an exercise is longer than 30 seconds, you're told to put it down. Um, Do they have any like competition or any students who left and created their own version of it? Or they, they've basically kept it their own They've circle, kept no? it, yep. There, I, in New York, there was a fellow that um, I think – he got shut down. I think he got sued. Um, he was friends with the founder and I don't know a ton of that, that story, but 
um, I, I learned a little bit about him through that. Um, but that's it. That's to me very similar. What you say? Gyrotonics is from what I've heard, like one of the most amazing things you can do. Like one of the best practices, great for, for joints, great for mobility, great for lots of things. Yet how many people know about it? Yeah. Because it's the same thing. It's like, yeah. Because, and I think it was historically with the Rolf Institute, you know, they're holding on to this secret out of fear of it blowing up. And I, I understand it. And I, I know I don't have answers for that, but I guess we're all kind of just running in circles of kind of exploring this. How, how tight do you hold on to something where it just becomes this a club versus. Jangled. Yeah. Initiated. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, what happens when the founder is no longer earthbound? You know, what's the plan for, and I know, I think, and I don't know, maybe I'll have some, somebody from the gyro world to come schooling me, correcting me. But my understanding is a little bit of this, um, holding on to, to the practice is out of fear of what happened to Pilates that it blew up and became this, well-known thing that helps people. <laughs> right, but, but, it's, but it's, it's well-known. It's well-known. It may help people, but it's not regulated in the same way. So the issue with that is, I mean, it's, it's actually the same thing we have, but we just don't necessarily say it, is you go to a Pilates teacher that teaches one method, and it's great, and say, okay, I like Pilates. And then you go to another teacher, and they do a completely different thing. Now, they both are called Pilates teachers, but it's, there's no... There's there is no, a regulation. There's an alliance for Pilates. But as far as how they teach it or what they're doing, maybe. So there's not like a, a similarity, maybe, right? So, you, so teachers can teach very, very different. There's mm -hmm. a yoga alliance, but almost every yoga teacher, depending on where you, you went, we are all three of us are yoga teachers, and we probably all learned very different because of that trademark or that lack of trademark. While I under, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going on inside the Rolf Institute, depending on which teacher you get, you can get a very different uh, take on the work. Right, which right. I mean, that's not a bad thing, but it, it's... It, it it doesn't stop there from being variation. It just right. it slows down growth. Right. The the best saying I think I've ever heard about rolfing is uh, there is as many ways to rolf as there are rolfers. Yeah. So I think the board certified structural integrator is a great um, option to grow the work because rolfers can't also do that. It's not saying we're going to take something away. And it's a standard that everyone could uh, aspire to or meet. And if that were advertised, like, I mean, look at the name change at the Rolf Institute. They intentionally took structural integration out. It's no longer the Rolf Institute of Structural Integration. It's the Dr. Ida Rolf Institute. That's intentional. That's to separate them. So, you know, they'll have to see if that's a good strategy or not. Um, you know, there was a lot of money spent on a marketing firm that to me, I tuned into that meeting uh, when they had the Rolf community meetings and it's, there was no social media component to that uh, piece of work that we paid for. It just seemed like old mentality. They were talking about font colors and font sizes and, um, Anyway, 
I, I think there's a chance to grow structural integration. I don't want to spend too much time talking about what's wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so going with that, and also, I usually I say being mindful of time, but we passed being mindful of time <laughs> hours ago, which is fine. From your side, how do you see Global SI growing? What What is it sort of that you hope to see either out of Global SI or out of your own sort of practice? What is it you see coming down? What What excites you? What's yeah. going from there? So what excites me is growing our profession. I see two ways that that needs to happen that, that I can be involved in. Um, one is that I encourage my colleagues, my fellow alumni of the Rolf Institute and other schools to become board certified. Um, and let that be the thing that we put out into the marketplace as this is the standard. So we can at the same time have a common platform. So we've got all the graduates from all the schools calling themselves the same thing. That immediately helps with critical mass. And it creates some kind of a standard that we can say, okay, well, the person has at least mastered at, at this level. And if they have their own variation, fine. And it still lets people continue to use the Rolfing trademark. I, I use that in my marketing materials for my practice. Um, so it, it does, it's not, doesn't make it an either or, it's an and. The other thing I'd like to share is my vision with Global SI. Um, I've spent the last couple of years lobbying the IOSI Education Committee and the board itself to allow me to run what I'll call a field experiment, which is how can we go into a market that has no awareness of structural integration, which means there's no practitioners, no schools. How do we penetrate that market and build enough interest and awareness in the work so that the students have demand, meaning that people will pay them for sessions. That takes uh, community awareness of the work. And when there's demand for those people trained in structural integration, then we have demand for people that want to come take the training. So there's a little chicken in the egg that goes on there, right? So, so what I propose is, is the global SI blueprint. And I'm pleased to say that after a lot of lobbying and a lot of uh, working together with the, the board and the committee to kind of fine tune it, address some of their concerns, it, it, it just passed uh, a couple months ago. So um, this is real now. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so, so basically what we were able to do was to get them to grant us an exception so that we could uh, teach a streamlined course of uh, live hours that's less than 500 hour live hour requirement currently to be able to sit for the board exam. So we're allowed to teach 240 hours of live hours. And then for those students that want to bridge up to the 500 hours, we're allowed to teach them uh, either by letting them repeat classes, letting them do case studies, or letting them do online training. So it, it doesn't mean that 240-hour graduates can take the board certification exam, but it gives them a way to, to bridge there if they want to. And it lets us, uh, at a lower price point, get people trained in structural integration. So right now, uh, we've got 17 structural integrators in India that I believe because of their background and, and the way that Global SI teaches, I, 
I'd put them next to any graduates of any of the other schools. Um, some of them have PhDs, many of them have master's degree and it's in physical therapy. So, you know, some people will say, oh, well, physical therapists don't do this the way we like them to do it, or massage therapists don't do this the way we like them to do it. But the point is they have a strong background before they came into the program. And then the goal is, and we hope that it takes, typically it took me a, a year and a half of building the relationship with these folks to, to kick the program off. Then once the program starts, we are targeting two years to be able to complete the first batch of graduates. From that batch of graduates, we identify those people that are interested and have the aptitude for teaching, and we begin to let them assist the next subsequent batches. And we are able to um, create three categories of teachers, which will also be included in the upcoming uh, school standards for IOSI that should get ratified whenever we're able to hold the next IOSI conference. It was supposed to happen uh, last spring, but was canceled because of COVID. So in that there's associate instructors, there's uh, assistant instructors, and there's full instructors. And it varies based on how many years of practice they've had. Uh, in order to kind of move up that ladder, you have to assist a certain class three times before uh, you're able to kind of move up in responsibility. So the associate in instructor is allowed to assist an assistant or a full instructor. Full instructor has to have seven years of experience. They're allowed to start their own school. They can write their own curriculum. And then the assistant instructor, I think is five years. And I want to say associate is a three year uh, minimum. Um, it basically creates a, a pipeline because what we have, eventually want to do is create local instructors and eventually that will turn into local language classes. Um, but you kind of have to start at the foundational levels in this blueprint. We also, uh, want to create, um, global SI community centers. And at first it might be leasing at some point we might move into the real estate itself, but what we want to do is have a place in the community where people know this is where structural integration happens. And when people begin to identify, wow, people get well when they go here, they feel better. Now we've got community awareness, we've got demand for the work, so we can also give jobs to the practitioners in those community centers. Because I think one of the big impediments to our growth as a profession is there's an assumption that everyone that comes through a structural integration training is automatically has an aptitude to be an entrepreneur. And that's not the case. I think a lot of people struggle with how to build a private practice. And some people just aren't cut out to be an entrepreneur. It's, it's not a, a diss. It's just a different, they have skills in other areas. And I think we, we lose a lot of people through attrition because of that. So if we had these community centers where we could offer jobs, I think that would lower the attrition rate and the burnout rate. That's it also said, go ahead. I like that. I think that's so true. I mean, there's so many practitioners that I, or, students that I've seen go through the program and they were very skilled and would be great practitioners, but building business, it's just, I struggle with it. I think the way I've been able to be successful is just sticking it through and word of mouth. But you compare that to the people that ha do have that entrepreneurial edge who bang out practices. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, um, kind of comparisons like 
are they good because they're really good at the hands on touch or are they good at selling? Yes. Yeah. And probably and I'd say there's a, a spectrum of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The answer yeah. is always yes and yes. Or as in rolfing school, the answer is maybe for everything. Yeah. Depends <laughs> and maybe. <laughs> so I also think the Global SI Community Centers addresses another issue that we have is that it would set up a place where mentoring could happen and uh, apprenticing. So if we once we get a couple graduating classes, you'll have some senior practitioners that can work with some uh, junior practitioners and people in that environment may also be inspired to teach. So it'll be another incubator for people that, that want to become an instructor. And this is like a big leap now, but it's part of my, my vision is that then we've got someone managing that community center. So they will be someone that has an aptitude for entrepreneurial uh, activities. And if after a few years of running a global SI community center, if they could then take the global SI blueprint and take this to another city in their country and start it from scratch, now we're starting to get distributed non-hierarchical replication. And that's what we're, that's what we're going for. I think we, we've seen what hierarchical structures and scarcity and fear thinking have done. That's been going on since 1971. We've got to change with the times. And it's, it's about, if, there's a business book called The Spider Starfish. We need starfishes, not spiders. Uh, so this non-hierarchical distribution, that's, that's my pitch for how we grow as a profession. And that's, that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm working on. Well, um, with a bit, well, I can't help my brain, my, my movement modality brain started having, um, with, it, well, like with the, the community centers, I was like, oh my God, this could be like, lack for a better word of like the Disney world of movement. You can have all these different <laughs> movement yeah. modalities and, other ways to to incorporate structural integration with you know movement fitness yeah and you know like anything i i think once we kind of so with this non-hierarchical replication i feel a strong responsibility to put a solid imprint at the beginning so the global si curriculum focuses on a basic script for the 10 series. And I don't overcomplicate it. There's so many ways you could take a session one or a session two. And in a condensed format, uh, I have three days to teach them each session. So the first day we teach uh, skill building where they're learning techniques. And the second day it's embodiment where they receive and deliver work with their classmates under supervision. And then the third day is clinical delivery where we bring in outside clients and they work under supervision. Um, so I give them a basic script and I tell them, learn how to do this. If you're not uh, feeling inspired and you can only follow the script, you're going to deliver a great session. My hope is that as you go deeper in this work, you will make it your own and you won't just keep following the script. That's great. When I was in my phase two, 
we'd been given one of the famous like hand drawings of the session, but taught to not follow it per se, but it was really helpful for when I was just starting to think about, okay, well, well what, what do I need to do next? If when I, when I was, couldn't think of it, I didn't know how to feel, I didn't know how to listen. And, and it was really helpful to have a script with the intent to get off of a script. Yeah. 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 It makes total sense. And I think in the beginning, it's important that the, especially since there's a gap it's because I don't live in these countries. Like, you know, I'm teaching usually two, two units at a time. So I'll teach like a, a session one and a session two class back to back. And then I'll go away for four, five months, come back and teach three and four. I need them to leave confident that they can deliver this because the real learning is going to happen between the classes where they're practicing it on people. And then they can ask me questions and, you know, there's that kind of feedback. But if I tried to overcomplicate it, I'm just going to leave them confused and not confident. So that's something I think is really important as we go into the, but I'm also giving them the context that you will not always follow this basic script. And I give them the principles and I, I give them the layers that I expect them to work on, not just your physical touch, but how are you managing your own energy field and your own mind while you're touching before you touch? What kind of language are you using with them? Are you teaching them a felt sense vocabulary? Are you able to help them feel something that they can't feel? Can you help them connect what's going on in their life with what they're feeling in their body? And, you know, on and on and on all the stuff that, that we all know about. But so I paint the, because I don't fry them with too many multiples, too many techniques, they still have bandwidth so that I can talk to them about these other layers, the movement, the emotional, the spiritual, uh, and get them to feel that and not just uh, be so concerned that I've given them a hundred techniques in three days. Are they going to remember any of it? So that's part of the, the way that we're able to teach the shorter format is because we've tailored the, the curriculum to make sure that they're competent and confident when they leave. Nice. Well, I do want to be mindful of your time, which is this great. This has been I'm, so fun talking yeah. to you. Yeah, and, I enjoyed and, it too. And this has been one of the reasons, like we've had a little few reasons for starting, but one of it has been to have to have discussions and to have thought leaders and to also how can we keep developing our profession? And part of that is getting out of the box, get, having conversations with people who, who may think differently, who may see different. And this has been such a delight, really. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say we should have you on again, but man, the editing I have to do for your talks is just a lot for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this to an, uh, in the books and the, we'll see yeah, if it makes sense anymore. Thank you so much for, for your time and for your, your knowledge and your experience and your stories. It's been great. Thank you both. So good to see you again, Derek. Yeah, you too. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Derek at advancedmanualtherapeutics.com and more about Global SI at globalsi.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find this, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.